So the platform we built using machine learning to make these humans, so physicians and nurses, very, very efficient and have 10 times or 100 more times patients managed with the help of machine learning, but without removing them from the loop because patients need this human touch to change. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Health Unchained has launched a Supercast premium membership community where you can watch interviews before the rest of the public gets to listen to these conversations. You can find a link to our Supercast website in the episode show notes. Health Unchained is a media partner for the Blockchain and Healthcare Today Symposium in September 2023. If you're interested in buying tickets or sponsoring the event, please reach out to me so I can help coordinate with your team. In this episode, we speak with Alexander Lebrun, co-founder and CEO of Nabla, a French health tech startup launched in 2018 and raised 17 million euros in a Series A. Nabla helps healthcare companies build engaging patient relationships through a series of digital communication products, enhanced with machine learning technology. To me, their most interesting technology is their ability to extract medical facts from patient-doctor conversations and structure the data appropriately. Although their tech stack doesn't have a blockchain or Web3 element yet, we did discuss the potential role blockchain may play in the future of securing data and giving patients ownership of their data. I hope you all enjoy this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. And now, let's get to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I'll be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? blockchain. What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. And now, let's get to the show. Welcome to Health Unchained. Today's guest is Alexander Labrun, and he is the co-founder and CEO of Nabla, which is a French health tech startup doing a lot of interesting things with AI-driven patient engagement tools. So we're going to dive deep into the company and also his thoughts on telehealth, AI, as well as a little bit about what he thinks about blockchain as well. So Alexander, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, right? Awesome. And I know Nabla was launched in 2018, right? But before we can get into the company, can you tell me a little bit more about yourself and explain to the audience about your career trajectory so far? Yeah, sure. Before Nabla, I founded and sold two startups in the machine learning field. I actually met chatbots when I was in engineering school in 2002, so 20 years ago. And I fell in love with uh, this chatbot and the the concept of teaching a machine to have a conversation with you (laughs) and understand uh, language, human language. And so I decided to just work on that. I asked myself, okay, who can buy this? And so I thought, again, doing a customer service chatbot would be the the approach with the business model. And then I started another startup called WhipAI, which is a natural language processing API that makes it very easy for any uh, developer to create a software or a service that you can talk to in different languages. Uh, so you kind of Siri as a service, as we said. And this one was acquired by Facebook in 2015. So I joined Facebook at this very interesting moment where 
um, getting up to speed with machine learning, the, the latest deep learning. It was very important for Facebook to catch up with that. So I eventually uh, stayed for four years with Facebook AI research, working on very advanced conversational AI research. But still, I am an entrepreneur and I couldn't wait to start another company after that and trying to apply this research to a real world problem. And this is what we did with Nabla. Yeah. And speaking of all your experience with AI chat, I'm just curious about your thoughts on chat GPT, which is becoming a very big craze on the internet. Everyone's using the open AI tool. What are your thoughts on that just generally? <laughs> I'm just curious if you think it's a great tool, if it's okay. What's your opinion? Yeah, good, good. We spent five minutes before we <laughs> started to talk about chat GPT. Like, when we're done, I thought we wouldn't uh, <laughs> to take less, less than a minute. Yeah, no, it's a very impressive tool. Do you think it will sort of become this monopoly of chat AI or will there be different versions of it? Yeah, beyond chat GPT, I think large language models like uh, GPT-3 and you know, others are going to come, uh, completely change the machine learning world uh, because I think they will clearly be at the core of many systems. And machine learning engineers like myself and my team, you know, we used to build our own models and then and more and more, it won't be relevant anymore because we will be just clients of this API. So our job is changing from building models to know how to use these kind of large language models. And there is still a lot to do. We can talk more about that, but to, to actually use them in, in real world situations and still more for healthcare. But the, the core of the intelligence will, is actually moving to things like GPT-3. It's not just a fancy thing. It's also a fancy thing, very impressive, very nice. But more than that, it will completely remap the machine learning uh, engineering world. Interesting. All right. Let's talk about how you got into healthcare. So you're doing a lot of this AI stuff with chat. What brought you to the healthcare space? So I think many engineers, I was shocked by the all things that are non-optimal, to say the least, in healthcare. <laughs> and you know, as an engineer, you cannot see that and not thinking about solutions. And of course, you're naive and you think you can change everything in a few years. And, and you're different from the hundreds of startups who died trying <laughs> in, in go to market to healthcare before. But So I always had this temptation to do something in healthcare because the potential for impact is huge. And after... I sold my first two startups and when I was at Facebook, so I'm very lucky. I have a team I can bring with me. It's easy to find investors. So we should really choose a difficult but impactful problem. And healthcare was the obvious candidate for that. Interesting. So when you get into the healthcare space, you thought the concept of using telehealth and chat for healthcare is going to be your goal. But did you know exactly what use case, like was it for patients, providers? Did you have a sense of exactly what the use case was going to be? Or was there an exploratory phase? Yeah, we had a very long exploratory phase, about more than a year. And we were able to do that because, as I said, we were already funded because we were lucky to have startups before. So we were lucky to have investors even before we chose the, the problem. And we knew that go-to-market is very, very easy to have good ideas in healthcare. It's also easy to build a product, but very, very hard to in insert your product in the system because it's a huge monolith with dependencies, lots of politics, you know, lots of issues everywhere. It's very hard to make people change. And we are aware of that, but we didn't know the solution. And so we took a lot of time to show. We talked to more than two or three hundred of physicians, clinics, payers. We showed them some prototypes. We really spent a lot of time at the beginning, at the first year of Nabla to explore. And even after that, we were not sure what would be the best path forward. And we decided to start our own digital clinic for women's health. So it was not really our end goal, but we thought, okay, the only way to learn is to be a provider ourselves. 
with our doctors that we hire, our patients. Let's you know have, run this business and then we'll understand firsthand how we can help to deliver healthcare. So we have this clinic in France and the UK for about a year, a total two years of learning <laughs> before we started to sell our what makes our product today. Interesting. Yeah, I'm sure you learned a lot during that process. A lot of things you just didn't know at all about the healthcare system and how patients and providers interact with each other is very interesting. And each relationship is unique as well, you can say. I know this is something a lot of people have probably asked you already, but how did COVID-19 affect or shift your operations and strategy? So you started in 2018, had some time to figure it out. COVID hits, you probably shifted something around, right? Yeah, actually, our idea to start B2C to learn came because of COVID. Before that, we wanted to follow a more traditional path for health tech companies. We had a first version of our platform and we wanted to do a clinical study to validate that we were bringing some value. We had worked everything was ready to start this clinical study on a clinical trial on March 1st, 2020. So, of course, crazy timing. So, we were really ready to go and we needed to enroll family physicians like, like GPs for this study. And of course, even forbidden to run any clinical trial at this time. <laughs> and so we knew it would last a long time. And so we shifted our approach and decided to go B2C because this is something we could do. And actually, we provided a lot of value to individuals during the COVID. So we completely switched our strategy. What was the clinical trial about? Like, What was the outcome they were looking for? What was the treatment? Was it just the use of telehealth as the treatment for managing care? It was the use of telehealth, but mostly augmented by machine learning. What we do today, it was focused on diabetes type 2, as you know, and we were focusing on patients who were not, who were in the pre-diabetes type 2. We still have six months to avoid going to full diabetes. And during six months, the only thing that works is if you manage to change the lifestyle, the behavior of your patients. And the only thing that works is if physicians or nurses spend a lot of time with patients almost in person or remotely, but if you want people to change, to eat better, to exercise, and you need to do this with humans. And so the platform we built using machine learning to make these humans, so physicians and nurses, very, very efficient and have 10 times or 100 more times patients manage with the help of machine learning, but without removing them from the loop because patients need this human touch to change. Practically, for instance, in text messages, we would automatically generate messages and we never send any message without the validation of a nurse or a physician. So it's not a chatbot, but we generate them. It's very personalized. We send them at the right time to the right person. We wanted to validate with a clinical trial that this actually has a big impact on these people and that they don't get to full diabetes. So I would say that for Nabla, that's like your unique value proposition compared to other telehealth solutions because there's thousands of telehealth products now, as you know, as a result from COVID, I think, I don't think before that there was that many, but they don't all have like a AI chat function, especially in terms of helping providers be more efficient or effective. I think that's something that providers are wanting. It's a demand from provider side, but it's also very difficult to do right. So yeah, have you seen a lot of this AI chat from other telehealth organizations as well, trying to do something similar. And what makes you more unique? Is it just your team and your experience with AI? You have over 20 years of experience. So would you say that's the most unique thing? So first we started with AI chat, but then we realized, maybe it was a mistake because then we realized again, 99% of healthcare, of virtual healthcare is delivered as video consultations, not chat. So maybe we are too early on the chat component. (laughs) So one of the many mistakes we've done. 
So now we expanded this approach to video consultations. And really what we are building is an AI-based medical assistant. And so we have this assistant listening to video consultation in real time. And we'll do a lot of stuff on behalf of the physician. So for instance, we'll try to generate all the clinical documentation. You know, physicians hate to do that. What they call pajama time, they have to do it uh, <laughs> late in the night. And so we will try to write clinical documentation, program the follow-up with patients, write some letters, any stuff that they don't like to do we can pretty well automate today. So we also have this version of how to be more efficient during a video consultation. We save up to 50% of their time during a consultation. They can focus more on the patient instead of typing some things on the, on the side. And so it's a benefit for both the physician, the, the telehealth platform, and the patient. So we started with chat. Most of our physician users are using this version. So is the video recorded when the patient is speaking to the doctor? Is that video conversation both sides? Is the audio and video recorded? We don't record it. It's really a stateless uh, API. We get a stream of the audio and we transcribe it. Then we run our machine learning to generate documentation and everything. And by default, we will drop everything. So it's really a state API. And we have customers who are telehealth platforms themselves who want to add this capability to their platform. So they use our API under the hood to provide that. So we are not competing with telehealth platforms. We are more trying to be a tech provider for them. Yeah, that's very interesting because I know privacy in healthcare is a major deal, especially over telehealth, that video. I know many telehealth companies don't record, but I think some may do it for whatever reason, maybe even for the patient's behalf so they can watch and listen to their doctor say what they said again. But it's really interesting, the model that you have, because it is a stateless API, you're saying. And one thing I'm going to ask is... Theoretically, using blockchain, many will say that you can do this and verify that what you're saying is true. I have no reason not to believe you that your infrastructure, your software infrastructure is taking that audio video, transcribing it, collecting the information that's needed to generate the documentation and then dropping, deleting the video. I mean, that makes sense to me. But do you know what I mean by on a blockchain, potentially it could be verified to what you're saying? You know, this is my dream. I like to do a DAO <laughs> okay. and, and to run it on... <laughs> And Ethereum, and of course, this is a dream. I hope one day we'll be there. I still, we, there are many steps before in terms of performance because what we do is very, very, very intensive in terms of GPUs. But in theory, we should do that, as you say, with a contract. And you don't have to trust me. You can just verify what I say. I think before we get there, first, I think the most obvious would be to store the patient's records on the blockchain. It's a perfect use case. It's very hard to do it in practice. I don't think it's been done at large scale yet, because healthcare industry has so many things to manage before they get there. But this is a perfect use case. It's patient record, you know, should be immutable. Nobody should be able to go back in time and change what the consultation was about. Or it should belong to the patients, not to the providers. But today, in practice, it belongs to the providers. They store it in wherever they want. Even if there, is, there are some new regulation that say the patient can get this data in practice, it's very, very hard. Before we come to the DAO, at least for the storage of uh, patient records, we should use a, a blockchain. Yeah, and I agree with you. It will take time. I don't think we're ready for it yet. And especially the complex calculations that you're doing to generate these insights, blockchain is not ready. But we'll get there. I'm very obviously passionate and confident about that. Uh, we'll see how that turns out. If we talk about speech to text, one of the things we need to do is to turn audio speech into text, and then we work on text. And up to six months ago, the best system in the world was probably the one provided by Google, Google Speech API. A few others are almost the same level of quality, maybe sometimes a bit higher, depending on. And OpenAI 
released in open source a system called Whisper AI about six months ago, which was actually better than Google uh, Speech. And last week, they released Whisper version 2. That's way better. And it's open source. You can run it on your Mac. Give us two, three years before you can run open source things like that on a contract where you can check everything. It's not science fiction anymore. And if two years ago you told me we'll have an open source speech-to-text engine that is better than Google, I would have loved. There we are. And six months later, we get the version 2. It's so fast now that we can be very excited about where we'll go. Yeah, technology is just increasing, increasing and exponentially. So it's quite interesting. Question about Nabla. Is any layer or part of the code open source or is it enterprise closed? It's closed today, but we may, and we are still in a state where we go very fast and probably we're not ready to open source it, but we are thinking about open sourcing it because for the reason, you know, we can do it because we like open source as developers, but also we should do it to our customers will be large healthcare organizations. And of course, it's, a, it's not a DAO yet, but it's a first step toward more transparency. And they know they can live with us. If we die, they can run it. So even commercially, I think it's a good idea for health tech companies to be open source. So we should go there in the future. Excellent. And it takes, like you said, you do have to prepare for something like that. You can't, I mean, because you've already built something, you don't want to just go open source right away without proper documentation, proper endpoints being considered and whatnot. So. That's fair. Yeah, unless it's open source from day one, you know, which happens for some projects, it's the best solution. But if you missed this, we should have thought better from day one. But then it's not too late. On my previous startup with AI, we open sourced part of the stack. And it was very powerful because developers from the world added some languages. So today with AI supports 200 languages. And we just oh. worked on two internally in French and English. And now 200 languages are supported just because it's an open source uh, project so it's very powerful i wonder about how the next generation of kids are going to be learning languages we both didn't have these tools even like my teacher would tell me i'm not allowed to use a calculator in the class or for homework or something but now everyone has an amazing calculator in their pocket so it's just interesting to see how the next generation is going to turn out i'm a little concerned but also it's kind of exciting to see like their ability to catch any information they ever wanted immediately. So is this good for the brain, bad for the brain? Not too sure yet, but still, it's a good experiment, I guess. I've seen a country, I think it's Norway or Finland, where they were considering to stop teaching kids to to write, you know, handwriting. And so there was a huge debate. Of course, we don't handwrite anymore, but should we still learn it or not? I don't have any answer, but it's an interesting question. That is interesting. I'm not going to try to answer that now, but I think it's interesting to think about for sure. So in terms of data privacy and personal ownership of your health, someone's health data, you already talked about this a little bit, but I know in Europe, you're in France, GDPR is a major policy that everyone needs to follow. And I'm just curious about what are some of the advantages that you've been able to utilize in your product using GDPR? Like how are you differentiated there? When you start a company in Europe, GDPR is both a problem and opportunity. The opportunity is that from day one, you have to build your product with privacy in mind. Of course, all startups in the world would say, I built it with privacy first in mind. And <laughs> you actually have to do it because it's, and especially our first customers in Europe, even they would check, really check that we do everything that we are supposed to do. And so we build the product from scratch with this in mind. So it's easier than later on turning it like, a bit like to open. So I think this is an advantage for us. But it's also an issue. I think GDPR is good, no question. But there are other regulations 
in Europe, especially in France, where they would, uh, for instance, ask you to host data in French cloud providers that who have some very bizarre certifications that only French providers have this, and you cannot host a modern stack on these providers. And so there are also issues that we face because of, of regulation that is not good, that is based on, you know, I prefer to be hosted on a very secure provider in uh, another country rather than a shitty provider in my country. But you cannot say this. It's also an issue for startups like us. Many healthcare startups in France have to decide early on, do we really want to focus on the French market or go international? Because if you want to cover the French market, you have so many things to do that you don't have time to develop the feature that you need to go in international. And so that two different paths, both are viable, but you have to make a decision. So are you operating in France and other European countries right now, just to be clear for the audience? All the team is in France, but we have customers in the US, in South America, in Africa, in India, in the UK, in Belize, in Brazil. So we made sure we chose the second route, you know, to focus on international customers. And sometimes we will lose, we may lose like a French hospital, for instance, because they are requiring things above the regulation that we cannot provide. And if we do that, we cannot do everything at once. That's interesting. I guess the French really, uh, they're quite picky about their telehealth too, <laughs> not just their wine. Very interesting. You know, machine learning obviously is a very complicated application or tool. So in healthcare, become more complex using machine learning. Is it because there's just a lot of things about healthcare we don't understand yet or about the body or take the physical anatomy and viruses and all these things? It's a complicated thing. Biology is not fully understood, right? So is that one of the reasons why applying ML is challenging? Or what do you think about all that? Technically speaking, it's not harder than any other domain. What's really hard is to roll out real-world systems. And so I think the two main things are that makes it very difficult is, first, you cannot be wrong. If you use machine learning for search engine optimization, nobody cares. But if you do this for diagnostic, of course, it's not an option. The bar is much, much, much higher. You can be a little bit wrong sometimes and control it maybe, but definitely the expectations in terms of precision are much higher. The second thing is if you do diagnostics, for instance, you need to be a medical device to have the stamp. So it changed recently, but up to very recently, the process to get this certification was not made for machine learning. You have proved that every branch of the decision tree would go to an acceptable outcome, but it is not how machine learning works. <laughs> so they have changed the policy around that? Yeah, and they did, I think last year, the first pure machine learning systems got certifications. I'm not an expert in this, but I know that mm. it's possible now, but it's not easy. And you can make a very, very smart system if you cannot have a minimum of explicability to check the box, the, the regulation uh, checkboxes, then you won't get this medical device certification and it's useless. So it's a second difficulty, I think. And it would be worse with large language model. We talked about GPT-3. It's harder to explain anything in, in the current. There is an output, yes, but where does it come from? Why? How, how can, is, there is no way in the world to prove that what is that the output is correct. And so it's not a concern from some application. But it's a huge concern for healthcare applications. And sometimes GPT-3 will, or chat GPT will start to hallucinate. You know, it's, it's enough that a few words are wrong and then it will pick up on these wrong words and go <laughs> far away doing full dreams. And so imagine it happened in the surgery room. <laughs> That's the second issue, I think. And the third, the third issue, the first thing we learn is that physicians as users, very hard to work with. You don't have a second chance. <laughs> 
they're busy all the time as well and i know they're always busy so like if it doesn't work the first time they don't have a second chance <laughs> except like you said you don't have a second chance yeah i think for them many physicians think that their life was better before digitalization before it before computers in general it was simple that a sheet of papers there was less bureaucracy less legal stuff many of them are the older ones are almost they would like to go back to <laughs> they, they think that computers brought more problems than solutions so far. A lot of constraints, but not a lot of help. And I think they are right. And so you come as an engineer, super excited. Oh, look, my new shiny toy. They've seen 50 of these before. And <laughs> so you start with a very huge handicap. So for instance, in our chat copilot, you know, where we try to suggest messages that the physician or the nurse should send to a given patient at a given time, our machine learning model will make suggestions and we have to choose a threshold below which we don't show the suggestion. And so we had a, a threshold of 50, you know, 0 0.5, 50%. As engineers, we think, okay, everything on more than 50 is good, good enough, let's show them and let's see if they pick these suggestions, if they accept it to send to the patient. And after just one, we realized that after just a day, if these suggestions are not very, very good, they just learn to ignore this side of the screen completely. So then, after that, you can make very, very good suggestions. It's too late because their brain is just ignoring this side of the screen with your copilot suggestions. And so we have to raise the threshold to 90% because a few wrong suggestions in a row and you're dead forever with this user. And so this is just an example of things we could very quickly learn when we were sitting next to them for on a digital clinic. Whereas engineers are completely different in terms of behavior. That's interesting. So like the doctors didn't even want to see any potential suggestions that look wrong, not even like select them, but they didn't want to like see them. And if they did see them, they would assume this product is garbage. It's kind of like what you're saying. Interesting. The example they had before is that there are tools that check the prescriptions to check there may be interactions between different drugs. And so, but these tools, the threshold is too low. So they, every time they do something, they have 10 red background pop-ups on the screen. And so they just learn to ignore all these warnings because there are too many of every step, 10 warnings. So you don't want to fall in this category. That is interesting. And there's so many different drug interactions and different ways to view that. And we're constantly learning. There's new data about that all the time too. New drugs coming into the marketplace. So you have to be up to date. Very interesting. So we talked a bit about like regulatory compliance already with GDPR and some technology innovation with the AI. But do you have any like other sort of experiences where you saw the balance between compliance and technology innovation kind of against each other? And maybe how did you solve that problem? Does that make sense? We see it every day. So for instance, to give you a very recent example, should we try to use ChatGPT or GPT-3 for healthcare? Regulation is not very clear. So OpenAI says because it protects themselves, don't use it for anything serious. But we know that soon it will be usable. You know, it should be possible. But is this HIPAA compliant or not? Nobody knows. Nobody wants to take the risk to have an, an opinion, <laughs> a written opinion. And so even internally in the team, almost every day we have some debate can we at least make a pilot or prototype using this or not? If we do a prototype, should we tell only partner physicians to use it? And should they ask the, their patient consent? Every day we have these debates. There is no... And we try to make the right decision. You always want to err on the side of cautiousness because as a startup, if we do one mistake, and we are dead. Yeah, you lose trust. 
So yeah, we tend to be more cautious than if we were in a, another industry. Interesting. So tell me more about Nablo's culture. It sounds like it's a great place to sort of work and, and grow. And there's a lot of smart people obviously working on these ML models and just the user experience for providers and patients. But is everyone working in France or is it distributed team? And tell me more about the culture. Yeah, we are a team of about 25, 30 people. Everyone is based in France. We're not a remote first company, definitely. We tend to be all uh, at the office in Paris, uh, still at the, sta at the stage of the project where there is a lot of informal. I know you can do this remotely, but we were, we more have an in-person. And But of course, in order to grow, we will become a hybrid company like everyone. We are still, I think, in the first stage of the company, below 30 people. Almost everybody is an engineer, still making big changes on the product, on the go-to-market strategy. And at this stage, I think, it's, personally, I like the fact that we are in person. And some companies are very, very efficient being remote first. They were built in this way. We weren't built in a remote first manner. Obviously, being in person together has advantages, for sure. You're able to quickly ask questions, answer questions. Things move a little bit more quickly, in my view. And again, it depends on the type of company as well. So for a healthcare company with technology, I think it helps. Yeah, and we work very closely with many doctors. And some of them come to the office, actually do consultations from our meeting room, from our booths like this one. We have getting feedback from them in this way is much more efficient, especially with physicians who are not very familiar with remote collaborations too. So it would be very much more difficult to get feedback. And then you have all the privacy issues. Uh, can I discuss this over Slack or not? And so on. So we also benefit from working with doctors in the same room. Totally makes sense. Can you share more about your investors and partners that you're teaming up with? Like, who are they and um, what have you done with them? So we raised uh, 17 million euros as a Series A. Our three main investors are two family offices in France. One is uh, Xavier Niel, which is a very famous and very successful entrepreneur in France. And the other one is Pinot Family, also and a very successful. So they own Caring, you know, Balenciaga, Gucci, all the luxury group. Well, the, these two guys are maybe the three or four richest people in entrepreneurs in France. Very, very successful and admired by all young entrepreneurs. And so we love the And our third investor is First Minute. It's a, a seed stage. VC based in the UK, founded by Brent Oberman, who was a founder of Last Minute, a travel company that, so again, a billionaire. We chose these three investors because the three are led by entrepreneurs. That's pretty great. I think you got some strong partners there with you. So kudos to you for making that happen. And obviously, it's based on your prior experiences, it sounds like. So that's great. I mean, great job. I don't have any more specific questions about Nabla. I do have a few questions just about your outlook for next year, maybe what you guys are planning to launch to do. And then I have some other personal questions I want to ask you as well. So next year is very important for us because so far, we delivered our AI-based medical assistant as a full telehealth platform. And so it was aimed at new digital clinics, smaller providers who are looking to use a full platform. But the bigger providers, telehealth providers, they already have their platform. They, they don't want to switch overnight. And so early next year, we will start to sell our medical assistant API as an API or SDK to these bigger providers. We'll have much more volume of activity through them. And so we are very excited to have a larger scale deployment of this medical assistant. 
yeah, I think that's really cool because you're right. They're not going to want to change their entire platform on the video side, but incorporating what you're doing, incorporating Nabla AI into that makes sense to me. I think it's pretty exciting. I know it's going to be a challenge because there's going to be lots of new requirements and lots of new features requested maybe, but the idea of that is operationally sound to me. We are about to release Chrome extension that can embed this medical assistant to any anything you use, you know, even on Zoom or it's really an extension that will insert the medical assistant in your existing tool. Even a private practice with a one physician private practice can use it and write your note <laughs> on the side and then you can copy paste to your EMR. We are very excited by this extension that we are going to release in a few weeks. That sounds like a really accessible way for a lot of people. So awesome. Nice work with that. Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. The FBI and the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency recently released a Cybersecurity Advisory, or CSA, warning health IT leaders that the number of U.S. entities compromised by Cuba ransomware, which has no connection to the Republic of Cuba, has doubled since December 2021. Not only has the frequency of attacks increased, but their tactics, techniques, and procedures have become more sophisticated. Cuba ransomware hackers have gained entry to the systems of healthcare and other critical infrastructure through known software vulnerabilities, phishing campaigns, compromised credentials, and remote desktop protocol tools. According to the Cybersecurity Advisory, in addition to deploying ransomware, the actors have used double extortion techniques in which they exfiltrate victim data and demand a ransom payment to decrypt it and then threaten to publicly release it if a ransom payment is not made. Healthcare organizations can take several steps to mitigate the effects of an attack. Among them are implementing a data recovery plan requiring all accounts with password logins to comply with National Institute of Standards and Technology Standards for developing and managing password policies and requiring multi-factor authentication. Other mitigation tactics include keeping operating systems, software, and firmware up to date, segmenting networks, implementing a network monitoring tool to identify, detect, and investigate abnormal activity, regularly updating real-time detection for antivirus software, auditing user accounts with administrative privileges, and implementing least privilege access, disabling unused ports, maintaining offline data backups, and ensuring all backup data is encrypted and immutable. Healthcare organizations facing a ransomware attack should report the incident to the FBI, CISA, or the U.S. Secret Service. A link to this Health Tech Magazine article can be found in the show notes. And now back to our conversation with Alexander Lebrun, co-founder and CEO of Nava. What's a book that you've read that you found to be very influential to you? Probably a book called Memoirs of Adam, maybe not very famous in the U.S. So it's a book where she pretends to be Adrian, the Roman emperor, and she writes, it, for me, it's like a business book. He explains how he ran the empire. It's incredibly well written, but, but also full of things you can learn. I think it replaces hundreds of self-development books or things like that, or even other entrepreneurs. Sorry, I think it's a very nice way to learn this. That's interesting. I'll make sure to put that in the show notes for people to check out as well if they're interested. Thanks for sharing that. So what are your thoughts about the AI singularity that is supposed to happen in 2045, made famous by Ray Kurzweil? Are you aware of this? I was really skeptical. We started talking about chat GPT. I was skeptical of singularity very before, but 
I'm blessed now. So you can see how the acceleration that we have sometimes in a few months, you know, we have stable diffusion, chat GPT, whisper for the speech to text and things like that. Huge progress in a few months, all based on the same kind of new approach on large language models and shows that the acceleration can be real. And so I'm still skeptical about singularity, but less than I was six months ago. <laughs> okay, that's fair. We still have over 20 years, so that's a lot of time, especially if things are exponential. Alexander, I want to thank you again so much for your time. I appreciate it. I know you're super busy, so this is helpful to reach out to the community and be able to explain what you're doing, what you think will happen in the future. And yeah, and do you have any final takeaways you'd like to share with the audience before we conclude here? Healthcare is very difficult for a startup, but it's really worth it. You know, and people like us will make things change. So we hit walls every day, but it's normal and we should continue. So everybody should join and, and go to Headscare. Awesome. I appreciate that. Thanks for listening, everybody. Appreciate it. Thanks, right? Thanks very much for your invitation. Hey, all you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org and remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.